Well, here we are, season three. For those with Drive, the Standard H podcast is a conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those who've been instrumental in growing companies. Season three will actually host episodes every other week, a change in what has historically been a weekly podcast. The reason is due to the pre-recorded nature of my schedule, and since we will all be home for the foreseeable future, I wanted to attempt to have these extend for a longer period of time than we will be socially distancing ourselves. Fingers crossed we get back to normal sooner than later, of course. Given the current climate, I wanted to start the season with someone who often offers such levity by way of his lightning-quick wit and his overall happy-go-lucky energy he's exuded via his social media platforms. Of course, I'm talking about Phil Toledano, or as you may know him on the socials as Mr. Enthusiast. Phil is a New York City-based artist who is an avid car and watch collector. Contrary to his personality, his conceptual art regularly takes a dive into some fairly dark exploratory realms. We discuss the ins and outs of a particular project of his called Maybe, which also inspired a documentary called The Many Sad Fates of Mr. Toledano. We get into some pretty deep dives of car talk and most certainly watch talk. It was a truly inspiring and a fun conversation to be a part of, and I hope you all agree. I actually did something different for this one. Prior to truly beginning each episode, I get levels from each guest so the audio sounds okay. I left in our lead-in conversation only to give you a glimpse into what it's like to hang out with Phil and to display what a crack-up he truly is. You'll see what I mean. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. I miss sitting in the passenger seat. When, you know when you're uh, Have you ever sat kid? in the passenger seat of your own car with somebody no, else driving it? my wife doesn't drive. It's the so weirdest I'm the thing. Sh- yeah, no, it's super weird. But my wife doesn't drive, so so I'm always I always say I should just wear like a little cap and open the door and the whole right. thing. She's just, just sit in the back, get it Another. over. With. Yeah, do, do. <laughs> that's brilliant. Your last name is it Toledano? 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 Yeah, that's what Tol, I figured. Tol, Tol, Tol. Tolly. That's what my nickname at school. No way. Yeah, my that was my father's nickname when he played basketball for Yale in 1928. What? <laughs> yes. Your dad went to Yale. Yeah. Was your dad born in the States? Yeah, 1910, New York. Oh, but you were born in the UK, right? Uh, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? W- weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, London, right? I did a semester abroad. That's how I got the accent. <laughs> you what are you, Madonna? Col- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you that's, go for that, six that, months that, and right. come back. I was, gonna I was raised here. Yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> okay, you know, when you, I love that. Madonna just came back full English accent. 100%. It was great. Yeah, that's really crazy. Yeah, that's what I did. Well, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. We've officially me. begun. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I can't wait for this because this is just going to be fun. Um, we talked about you recently being on the Hodinkee podcast. There's We'll get to other stuff, Hodinky related and watch related. So well, you were born in London, yeah, right? Um, but your dad's from New York. Yeah, he was from New York. What took him to England? He um, after the war, he worked for uh, U.S. Steel. Okay, and and uh, he ended up actually. I had the most amazing um, story about that ever in history, ever. In the history of well, let's debut this on the Standard Age podcast. <laughs> so uh, this is so in the fifties, U.S. Steel was like um, Google, 
Okay. Or, yeah. or Microsoft was. Monumental like, company. It was just the biggest. And, and also you have to think, imagine that America was at the peak of its powers. Post-Second World War, America was the world's superhero. Right. Not quite the same as it is now. But we, um, we don't need to go. We don't have to discuss. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my dad, my mom told me the story of one, my father needed a job. And so one day he woke up and he told my mom, I'm going to see the president of U.S. Steel. And so it's like saying, you know what, I'm just going to drop in. I'm going to see Bill Gates. I'm just, right. just going to make an appointment to see Bill casually. Gates. Casually. Yeah, casually. So he goes over there and he was, and he's a, he was a pretty, you know, handsome, charming guy. Um, and, he, and he talks his way up to the president's office and he finally gets to see the president's uh, secretary. And, and he says, I'd like to see the president. She goes, well, do you have an appointment? Do you? And he goes, no, but I have some things I think he'd like to hear. Because <laughs> he's just got the world's largest balls so that's like saying goes, i don't have an appointment but i should have <laughs> yeah that's like exactly. he should have had yeah, one for should, me they should have known right they should have known about my father and made an appointment reached out to trust him. me he wants to see yeah me. that was basically the gist of what he's saying so the <laughs> right. woman goes okay well you could just wait so he sits there all day finally he gets the door opens he gets you know he goes okay you've got five minutes and he goes in there and gets a job no way. <laughs> and, that, and that's the story. Well, that's, that was my dad. Like he was just, there was, every door was there to be opened. You know, there was no, he didn't, there was no reason to consider the possibility of no. Did that ever influence you positive, negative? Did you look at that as like a, like a superhero characteristic? Yeah. Or did you look oh, yeah. at it as like, I could never do that? No, or, I thought that was. Or it's like, oh, this is just how I, it goes. That's how it goes. Unbelievable. Well, because and I and I grew up with the idea of of uh, why not, right? And America, particularly New York, was always the place of why not. Whereas growing up in England in the seventies and eighties, it was a place of why. <laughs> you know, why would you do that? Right. <laughs> you know. Right. And Europe is still a little bit like that. Um, well, and then in the English tradition, it's sort of self-deprecating, but also like not shy. But you know what I mean. Like, well, you don't want you can't you, be ostentatious. Well, you don't want to be visibly seen to be advancing yourself. Right. Whereas in America, I mean, if you're, I mean, I, I, that's the why not. <laughs> yeah. That's the, I mean, I remember when I worked in advertising, there used to be this guy I worked with and he would always present these ideas, but they were always kind of on the, I was on the creative side and they, and they were always kind of, they weren't the best ideas, but he presented them with such conviction and gusto. I, I just watched people around me go, yeah, you know, this shitty idea is actually pretty good. And it was fascinating to see that. Oh, wow. Whereas I would start off, well, I've got this thought i'm not sure if it's any good but you know because that's the way you grew up in england and after a while i realized you can't really present ideas that way right so where'd you end up really think that where'd you end up at university i went to tufts okay Boston. and you studied english literature which is super useful no <laughs> after your dad was with um u.s steel he, he became an artist no well yeah because my i was born they moved to england in the early 60s uh and I was born in 68 and my dad was 58 when I was born. Wow. So when he, I, I was actually doing the numbers the other day. He was, I was 12 and he was 70. Right. Which is crazy. But it's interesting because he never seemed, uh, he, he was always super healthy, super fit. He was always eating you know, bran and, and brown toast and all this kind of stuff that no one was eating in the 70s or 80s. And he would swim all the time. So he was really fit. He didn't look like a guy who was 70, he didn't act like a guy who was 70. Uh, and he was an artist. What did he do primarily, medium-wise? Um, a lot of things, which actually I ended up being like that. He did sculpture, uh, painting, oils, um, 
or, or I mean, carpets. He had carpets made. He designed carpets. He did everything, really. Nice. So, what made you go into English lit then, rather than studying, say, like fine art? Because, <laughs> well, it was really the only thing I was any good at. <laughs> Really? Is the short answer. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, I was, my, well, I was pretty good at art, but my parents didn't want me to go to school for it. Huh. Well, I, and I totally get that because he, my father, they had made their money and they had retired and now he was living as an artist. But he knew that being an artist was a really hard thing to do and it was a tough job to have. Right. Um, so I think well, they would... Well, starving artist exists for a reason. Well, right? that's right. The cliche is there for a reason, like you say. So... Um, so that's why they, they, they were protecting me, which is what parents do. Right. You know, right. I didn't do that much good in the end, <laughs> but initially. Why not? Right. I mean, that's what you do. Existing. So like my kid asked me about that now. Lulu says, you know, what's it like being an artist? You, maybe I should be an artist. And I, and I think, well, I mean, you could, but it's not easy. Right. Which is actually not the thing to say to her. Well, how old is she? She's 10. Why do you say that's something you shouldn't say? Well, because you don't want to feel as though you're discouraging her? Yeah, I don't want to do what my parents did, even though they did it out of love and, and what they thought was the, in, their, in my best interests. Well, uh, if you can bring out the inner rebellion, tell them what not to do. <laughs> that's right. It's the reverse well, psychology. That's right? right. You know what? You shouldn't do that. I, I encourage you to be an accountant. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. Numbers. A, a standard Excel chart sheets. of the account. Yes. That's right. I show us Excel sheets all the time. She loves them. <laughs> She's really into it. She's just a fan of green. Like, just, that's it. I'd read her from Excel sheets. <laughs> right. Before to go to bed. So what were what was the first job out of school then? For you, I mean, um, Lulu's not working yet. For, <laughs> sadly, I keep trying to put her to work. Um, I I moved to Paris after Tufts, and uh, <laughs> this is how weird my thinking is. I thought I really wanted to start working. I was really I wasn't that interested in school, but I always felt like once I was out in the world, it would just I would just get going, and I really wanted right. to get going. So I got a job at an accounting software company. Speaking of checking Excel. Bug checking, <laughs> checking for bugs, a French accounting software company. And, and it was funny because I had been offered a job as an intern and I thought, you know what, this is everything I feel I hate. But maybe secretly I don't hate it and I should just try it and see if I actually turn out to be genius at it. But as it turned out, I, <laughs> I was completely right. I really loathed it. Um, I had to sort of teach myself accounting in French. And then I was the guy who just checked all this software. Um, and then growing up in England, I'm assuming you took some French. Well, my mom was French Moroccan. Oh, So I okay. grew up in London and Casablanca. So, so did you I grow grew up, up speaking French? Speaking French. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so the French part was not a problem. The f accounting software thing was a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was so miserable that I kind of developed this, this um, psychosomatic uh, tropical bowel disorder <laughs> where I would just I would I would I would go to the bathroom three or four times a day and I'd put a roll of toilet paper behind my head as a pillow and I have this like 10 minute nap because I was so miserable I had to go to sleep for 10 minutes just because it was so unpleasant and then I thought okay maybe that's a sign I shouldn't be doing this right uh <laughs> so <laughs> then I got another job at another software company that was 3d rendering software you rendered um uh, textile designs on top of photographs so people could look, see what the textile design looked like on a person. Oh, interesting. Um, and I went to Ham Frankfurt for a, a trade show and all it would, and the, and the software had, was super buggy 
But the, the, my orders were whenever the system crashed, it was my fault. So I spent like a week in Germany telling Germans that I was an idiot. Because the software crashed, I go, it's totally my fault. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And I just spent a whole week telling everyone what a buffoon I was. It, it well, just, given that you're not German, I'm sure they would be happy to tell you that anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there is that. There is that. But, so there was that. And then finally I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to try and be a photographer. Oh, right. Okay. So I started doing fashion photography. Um, which I but was why pretty, photography? Because I had always taken pictures of mine ever since I was 10 or 11. What was your first camera? I had a... I had to do a presentation to my parents on why I would should they should get me a camera. I still have the notes somewhere. I found the notes, a little notebook about why I should be a photographer. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I did this presentation. So you're one it, part creative, one part salesperson. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. So uh, I remember it cost 50 pounds, which was a lot of money for me at the time. Um, and then, so that's what I was doing in Paris for about a year. And, and then I, I, I spoke to my, I remember talking to my cousin going, oh, you know, I'm not sure about this whole photography thing. And he said, why don't you get into advertising in New York? And I said, okay. That was my next question. So <laughs> it was your friend that referred you to getting into advertising? Well, he, my cousin, yeah, he or said, cousin, he, said yeah. you should just do, you should, you, he said, I think you'd like it. So I thought I would, and I started reading about it. Oh, this seems interesting. It's like a job, but not a job if you're on the creative side. Right. Yeah. Um, so I moved to New York and then I called all my parents' friends because they used to live in New York. And I said, uh, it's Philip, you know, so-and-so's son. I'm in town. I'm wondering if you might know anyone in <laughs> advertising that I could go and see. And then someone knew someone. So I went to see them and I got a job. That's really smart. Well, it was just... I just just seemed, networking. It, well, it just seemed like the only... What else was I going to do? Yeah. I didn't know anyone else to do it. So, anyway. Yeah, because at the time, this is... Uh, pre-google right so well, <laughs> you couldn't just google advertising you know what it i mean and look up yeah yeah it was pre-everything <laughs> it was yeah um that's really interesting so i got a job as a as assistant to the chairman actually of this um pretty big agency and then he sort of shuffled me off to assistant to the head of new business and so you've been living in the city ever since yeah yeah okay that's really interesting. So then what were some of your clients? Who did you shoot for? Well, I wasn't taking Never. pictures. Oh, I was just, I was just, no, this you was, were just the assistant. Yeah. I was just doing, I was as the like new clerical uh, work. Uh, yeah. I was, do, I was calling up. Um, I spent a lot of my time calling up <laughs> companies of asking who the head of marketing was. And then I, and then I worked with the head of the new business department to brainstorm uh, a thing to send out to people like a shtick, like a, so we, we had this like toy robot that I wrote a script for that would that we would send out to all these head of marketing and, and then he would then they'd send the robot the toy robot with this like recorded thing and then he would then call them up and go, Hey, you know, we could we should work together, blah blah blah, let's set up a meeting. So I was doing I was the guy finding the addresses of all these people and, and making endless photocopies and all that stuff. But then on the side, because I wanted to be a, an art director. Right. So I, I would I taught myself um, design and then i taught myself to use the computer we weren't even using we were using next computers do you know what that was well that was steve jobs follow-up yeah, that was yeah. steve jobs. so i was training on i was teaching myself on next computers which no one in the world was using i'd never had one my dad worked for ibm back in the day oh yeah and so we of course had a pc junior right. you know like <laughs> right. in the house right, right, playing right. jump man or whatever yeah. the game was yeah. yeah so i i so i and then i would and then i put a portfolio together um and then I would go up and see, in my spare time, I'd go up and see the creative director on the, on the fourth floor and I'd just sort of harangue him. I'd go, 
do you think, what about giving me a chance? What about giving me a chance? You know, I just, I just stalked him. Right. I sat outside his office crying. So you were just persistent. He didn't, yeah, have, I was a he didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was charmingly persistent. <laughs> That's the key. That's amazing. That's the key. I just, I just harangued him endlessly and eventually said, all right, fine. Uh, after a year, um, they made me a junior art director. That's cool. And so you rose through the ranks and became creative no, I director got at some point. What? From that? Oh yeah, I got. <laughs> after about a year of working, you're not at, who you said you were. Wait a minute, <laughs> I've got fired on a fairly regular basis, actually. Really? Yeah. Well, when I work, <laughs> was that an interpersonal thing or was it work related? Uh, <laughs> it's the Tourette's. <laughs> it, was the, it, was the, it was the rage. It was the rage. It was the no, toilet it, paper breaks. Yeah, yeah with the, the, the snoozing. Yeah, the right. tropical bowel disorder. Right. No. Well, what I realized was that. Um, I was a real. I was. I worked really well in small, really creative agencies, and I didn't work well. The bigger the place and the more politics there were, the less uh, a- able I was to work. I'm the exact like, same way. I was just. I was really bad at. Neg- I always felt like I just wanted to say what I wanted to say. Why did I? Why did it have to? I. I. I was. Why do I have to explain why I'm yeah, saying what I'm or, saying? Yeah, or, or, or I just, I wasn't saying the right thing at the right time to the right person necessarily. Like, I wasn't good at navigating that kind of Byzantine labyrinth of, of politics. My wife is amazing. Like she's, you know, I'm, I, I'm in the trenches. I hear the whistle. I run over the top. I get peppered by machine gun fire and I fall into the barbed wire dead. Whereas Carla <laughs> is in an air balloon way above the trenches seeing which way to go so you don't get mowed down by the gun machine gunner. Wow. What does she do? She it works in advertising. Oh, you yeah. guys met. We worked. That way. Yeah, we met. She worked on the strategic side, and I was on the creative side. And we met in an agency. Well, now yeah, she runs an agency. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, it's very cool. Oh, really um, cool. So then, when did you make the departure out of advertising into art full time? Um, I, I had, and I actually recommend this for for a while. I had been thinking, God, I really want to be a photographer. Uh, and I didn't have the courage. And then I got this job at a really good agency. And it was the worst job of my entire life. I was so, I was so utterly miserable. I would come home and I would just sit down and not even switch on the lights and just sit there for like 20 minutes, just staring into space, just reveling, bathing in my misery. Just decompressing. <laughs> well, I didn't even know what it was. Just, yeah, just, just. And then, um, and I was really thankful actually because it made me realize I don't want to. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it anymore. Even though I had had a pretty good career in advertising, I, I you know, I was a creative director and I, I made good money. Um, but I was thankful that it was so terrible. So I always recommend if people are not sure if they if feel like they want to do a, a they want to do something else, they should get a job that makes them totally miserable. Learn what you absolutely hate so that you never have to do it again. That's right, kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, because otherwise, what happens if you have a medium beige-sized job that makes you comfy and happy? Right. Then it's cruise then control. You, yeah, then you wake up and you're 53 and you think, well, okay, what just happened? Yeah. And I also had this, I had this peculiar way of, I have this peculiar way of making decisions where I sort of think of myself looking forward and then I look back. I think of myself in the future looking back. So I'll, I'll explain. So for instance, I was 35 and I thought, okay, in 10 years time, I, I know exactly where I'll be if I stay in advertising. I'll be uh, a creative director at a bigger agency. I'll be making 400 grand a year. I'll probably have a house in the Hamptons and, and I'll be selling you know, campaigns to clients. Right. And, and I thought, Is that, would that make me happy? And the answer was so clear when I thought to myself in the future, considering 
that. Right. That's really interesting perspective. I don't, I don't know that I know anybody that looks at life that way. I always do that. I always think, okay, if I make this decision, will I, and I, and I, and I look back now and I think even if I've, I've had some degree of success as an artist, but I've had seven books published. And even if no one ever looks at my work again, that's for me, I've had seven books of work that really matters to me that someone else published and put out into the world. And that's, a, for me, that's everything. That's so incredible. even if it didn't work out, even if I'm not the most famous artist or even a famous artist, I've done something for myself that mattered. Was there anything as a creative director in an a agency that you were especially proud of? Well, you know what? Funnily enough, I'm very grateful to advertising because I didn't go to art school, but advertising was art school. It was art school, yeah. And it really taught me so many things that were useful, that are useful now. Mm. I think the number one thing is the idea of being brutal with ideas. Because I think what happens when you have ideas, no matter what field you're in, whether you're an artist, an entrepreneur, whatever it is, is that you've, you've got to be ruthless with whether the thing works or not. And if it doesn't function, even if part of it doesn't function, you have to identify that and, and, and amputate it. And that's what advertising was like. You had to be ruthless with your ideas because you had to generate a lot of ideas and then say, okay, this one works. And even if you loved something about the one that kind of didn't work, you had to kill it. Right. And, and that's really served me in good stead for everything I've done. Well, I was going to say, like, even through your work, like, one of, I think, really one of the more ruthless projects you've done is the, what is it, the uh, the Many Sad Fates? Ma oh, maybe. The, uh, the, ma ma well, the, the film is called The Many Sad Fates right. of Mr. Soledano, but the, the, the book is called Maybe, the project's called Maybe. Yeah, that was about, well, after my parents died quite suddenly, um, I found myself really worrying about the thing that's interesting about life is that you have no idea of what's in front of you. Like I remember very clearly exactly how my life was right before the phone call from my father where he said, something's wrong with your mother. And I had this life and then suddenly that phone call, it was a right angle. It was a sharp turn and everything in my life radically changed. And so I got really obsessed with this idea of what other sharp turns does life have in store for me that I can't see. And you, of course, you can't, you can't anticipate any of them because, you know, they're, 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 they're unseeable. But then I, but I decided I was going to do a project where I, I try and anticipate all the worst possible things that would happen to me in life. So go through just a few well, of those. I mean, of course, and it's, and it's, it is kind of a crazy idea, but, and the funny thing is, you know, with photography in particular, photography is always about the past. Right. You take a picture and it's behind you. So how it's do, forever. It is forever, but it's also, it's not the, so how do you research the future? So I, um, I talked to fortune tellers and tarot card readers and numerologists and, and, and I had them, I, I, I would ask them just what, what terrible things do you see in my future? And, then, and, and then, all of them are like, why are you doing yeah, this? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's like, are you sh really? Um, and then I took a DNA test that told me what, what illnesses I might get. And based on all this information, then I worked with a prosthetics expert who kind of made me up. And it took four or five hours to get into these into this silicon prosthetics. Um, and so, you know, there was, uh, well, the thing about it is it's not just um, things that might go wrong in terms of my physicality, my health. It's things that might go wrong in terms of me, my career or, or so. Like winding it, up homeless. Yeah, being homeless yeah. or having a stroke or, or committing. One of the people said I, she saw me committing suicide, which is really great news to hear. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one where I've had a lot of plastic surgery. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, for instance, the plastic surgery one is, is about me losing a sense of who I am, like losing a sense of, of perspective. Right. Um, or me being alone. Uh, so I spent three years doing that. So what exactly did you take from that project lesson wise? Uh, well, funnily enough, there was no kind of sudden religious, uh, you know, parting of the clouds. I just, I, I was doing it and I was doing it and I really hated doing it because it was just miserable. It was really expensive. It was really, it took a lot of planning. I had to cast for actors to play with me. Uh, I had to, it was just, I had to look for locations, styling, um, Actually, Valeria, Bradley's wife from Autodromo, she starred some of the pictures. Oh, really? Yeah, the one of me in a nightclub where I'm kind of got like a yeah. mullet and I'm yeah. <laughs> she starred that picture. It's one of my favorite pictures. Oh, amazing. Um, and uh, I suddenly, uh, there was a documentary film that was being made of it and it's actually on the New York Times website, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, That's where I the, saw it. Oh, it is? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the director, he, he, every time I would do a shoot at the end he would say so you, do you think you're done yet and then when he asked me i said i think i'm done and i didn't realize i was done till he asked me and i said it and then i realized that i didn't have to do any more and i realized and this is probably going to sound a bit odd but i just felt lighter i was going to ask you if there was like any spiritual revelation in that i mean that was that was the that was it i guess i just felt lighter i just felt I wasn't, I realized when I, when he asked me and I answered and I was surprised by my own answer, I realized that I wasn't worrying about what was to come anymore. Right. Cause you've already seen it. Well, even right? if I had, I mean, I, I've just seen so many iterations of me. I, maybe I burnt out that fear in some way. Cause I, because funnily enough, you know, you can't, I'm sure there's things that will happen to me that I have no idea what, what they'll be. Well, yeah. But, Cause I, I was <clears> curious <throat> as to like how you balance sort of the energies towards like, um, the results as a release versus a perpetuation. <laughs> well, that was, it's funny you say that and it, because Carla was very worried when I started that project, I was not in a good place. And she was really worried that they would send me spiraling into kind of a wormhole of misery. Right. Uh, and she said, she said to me, could you, she said, I think she says in the film, she says, can't you just see a shrink like right. a normal person instead of doing this whole thing for three right. years? And she would, uh, look, it would have been a lot better and a lot cheaper. Um, that was the day, that was a risk I took and it was a really selfish risk to take because I had a wife, I had a kid, uh, but I didn't really know any other way to, to sort of process those feelings other than to kind of just do it in this way, in my way. Well, you kind of mentioned two different vari variations of cost, right? But there's also the monetary cost of something like that. Because this podcast is about entrepreneurship. Sure. As well as just the lives of entrepreneurs, obviously. Sure. What does a project like that cost? I don't need to know hard number. Like It was just, ex like, it was expensive. To the sense, but like. It was, I mean, each shoot. Was so do you, is it like a normal film when you're producing art in general for your projects? Like, do you seek out funding the way that like no, movie production no, I, seeks I funding? To, or? I, I mean, it's all from, it's all self-funded. No way. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, incredible. But that, well, I think to, to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs share a lot with, with, with dictators. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> In fact, you'll see behind you those sculptures. Those are all me as various dictators. Right, yeah. <laughs> because the thing about a dictator and an entrepreneur is you've got to build a world and you've got to be, and you have to fill that world with believers. As you and see it. Yeah, and, yeah. Then you, and you've got to be totally delusional. 
as an artist, you, uh, uh, you've got to believe that you have ideas that no one else has had before. And not only that, but, these are, but people are waiting to hear your new ideas. Right. And that's what you do as an entrepreneur. You've got to have the belief that you're doing something new that no one else is doing. And you've got also got to kind of ignore what people say to some degree. Like you have to have this fine balance between ignoring, because there's going to be a lot of people say that's not a good idea, or I'm not sure, really. And, and you have to go, yeah, yeah, no, this is the right thing. Now, does maybe, is that the only one where you've actually shot a documentary in parallel? I didn't, I didn't, parallel? Do, the, I didn't do the documentary. That was, that was my film, my friend from college. But that's made. the only time that's happened yeah, when yeah, you've yeah, created yeah. art. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that was the other thing. It was making art in front of a film Friends? crew. Oh, yeah. It was weird because there's a weirdly performative aspect, although there was an already a performative aspect to that work because I'm acting. So your return on investment comes through the selling of these photos. That's right. Whereas his yeah. comes from, well, well, I guess that's well, a whole Josh other. Made a, Josh made a, Josh Seth tells the director, he, he's a, he makes really interesting documentaries. So he, he, we had, we had, we knew each other in school and then we ran into each other on the street randomly. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm about to start this project. He said, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I want to make a documentary about that. Wow. And that's kind of how that happened. Uh, but he did it in the same way I make my own up because he thought this will be an interesting enough thing where uh, it will it will get me attention. Did you sell those photos as individual photos or as a series? Did you have to buy all of them? Like, no, how no, did that go? You can buy them as individual prints. There's prints and then there's a book. Uh, and then, you know, there were shows, etc. Right, book, sure. Work. Have you used the same publisher for all seven books? No, I had uh, different publishers. Is that um, because of, I don't know, the I, economy of that scale or whatever? No, I just, you know, whoever was in, I mean, the last three or four books is the same publisher. The first, the first book I published was a book called Bankrupt. Mm. Um, which, that's photographs of bankrupt offices and the things that people left behind in them. That was the first project I did. And it was actually, when I became, a, when I quit to be a photographer, it, I, I, I synchronized my, my <laughs> losing my high paying job with the implosion of the economy <laughs> very <laughs> craftily. I planned it. That was when the tech bubble imploded. Yeah. So, I, was that 02? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or 01, 02, yeah. something like that. That's when I graduated college. Yeah. Let me tell you how great that was to find a job <laughs> exactly. coming out of college. Right. Yeah. Because I was not an electrical engineer or anything specific. Right. I majored in business. <laughs> well, that's a lot more tangible than, than English lit. But it's so vague. Right. That's true. All right. Let's just do business. Like, <laughs> I want to make some business. Yeah. Let's just make right. business. Right. What classifies a good photo to you? I guess... Uh, well, the thing is, I wouldn't consider myself a photographer. I should say that now. I, right, sure. I, I consider myself... You're an artist. Artist with a triple A-H. Well, actually, I say I, if I want to be a super dick, I say I'm a conceptual artist. Because everything for me, whether it's art or anything else, is always around an idea. Like even mm. with watches, the things I'm doing now, they're around an idea. Mm. Um, so for me, the thing that matters the most in art, or even in business in a way, is, is surprise. Right. Like you go, oh shit, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Right. And I love that feeling. In art, it's an amazing feeling when you see, and it's, it's part joy and enthusiasm and then part raging jealousy. Is disappointment in, yeah. myself, in yourself. Yeah, yeah, in myself and just jealousy that the other guy thought of it. And you know, how can I cut his brake lines and get into his will? <laughs> <laughs> or her will. Well, with the likes of social media and the likes of social <laughs> media, obviously, sorry, that was really lame, but... Um, in like engagement being somewhat of a determination or a 
determination of success online. Sure. Like, how do you determine your own success? Like, what does that look like? Uh, God, it's funny, the obsession with Instagram. Um, well, I, I, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean? What, 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 what does success what is mean su- online? No, for you, just in general, well, not I, online. Well, I'll tell you what I've realized about, in, well, for success for me? Yeah. Is it just generally? Yeah. Well, the, the, you know what you realize as you get older, which is really irritating, is that all cliches are true. Right. It's really annoying. Right. They exist for a reason. Yeah. You spend most of your life as a kid going, that's bullshit. You know, this, this is such a cliche. And then you get older, you go, oh, I guess that's true. So for cliche, for being successful at the thing you, you like, right. it's that dumb. Yeah. It's that dumb. And then, Do what then, you love and you never work a day in your life. That's right. Of. All those things, all of that booyah base of cliches, they're all true. Uh, and, but then again, you know, that depends what that means. If you can make a good living or you can live well and you can provide for your family or you can have a happy life, that's, you know, all, all those super tedious cliches mm-hmm. are all totally true. Well, what's interesting about what you've said so far, like is nothing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> is absolutely nothing. Nothing Phil. of substance. No, <laughs> zero. Um, the thing is, and I'm putting words in your mouth. There's like a level of masochism, it seems. only due to the fact that you hated your first job yeah you hated the job in paris you do these projects that well no are painful to do well maybe it was the only one that was painful to do generally speaking i really like the work i do okay uh that was that was painful well after my um after my mom died i had a real shift in the work i did and i started doing super super personal work what were you um, doing before that, just as an example? Well, oddly enough, it's all, I, I think that all art, artists do is personal. It's just a question of how visible they are in the work. Right. And so all, all of a sudden, I became very visible. I did a book about my dad. I did a book about my sister, the death of my sister. I did a b- book about having a kid. I did a book about myself. Like, um, so I was really visible in the work. Uh, I totally forgot why I'm saying this masochism <laughs> oh yeah that's right thank you oh yeah back to masochism well i am english so <laughs> there's a certain masochistic quality to english people i guess um i i felt like uh the maybe thing was the most unpleasant the other things were not unpleasant they were just things i felt i had to do right i felt like i had to sort them out i had to talk about them for myself to to make sense of my life but not in a destiny kind of way N- no, I mean... It, Just like a necessity. Yeah, it was a necessity. It right. was, I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're really interested in being an artist, it's always a necessity, mm. you know. I always... I've always enjoyed creating art and usually tearing it up and throwing it away, but... That's what most artists yeah, do. I, mean, that, just, I do the same thing. Uh, you know, paintings and such from years ago and things right. like that, but I've always enjoyed photography. I've always enjoyed architecture, even though I'm not an architect. Sure. I, I appreciate it. Um but with like certain creative, th- I was talking to my wife, I don't know, about a year ago about this. And I was like, I have what I call creative vomit. And like, <laughs> I can't stop thinking about something until it's created. That's right. And then once it's created, it's almost like I don't even think about it anymore. No, I'm, that's exact, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. Yeah. Like I have things that I have to do. And then once they're done, I have no interest really in them. Well, it's like what you're saying about maybe. There's like a, a weight lifted almost. That's you right. felt lighter. That's exactly right. And that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. That's the idea really part is the most exciting part. Because you're far more successful at art than I am. So, well, <laughs> only because I'm, I've tried, I've made an just effort. Just by proxy, be. I feel great. <laughs> I also am available as an aftershave. 
Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Back to my conversation with Phil. You have a very clean aesthetic the way you dress. Sure. And a, and a very timeless sense of style. And the jumpsuits? Are you going to get to the jumpsuits? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to bring it up, um, but the jumpsuits are timeless. Mechanics still a, wear them, yeah, right? <laughs> generations mechanics right. have worn them. But where does your style come from? Where do you like to shop? Well, this will explain a lot about me. And it was a real revelation to me. But uh, I worked for a guy in advertising. This guy was a genius called Andy Berlin. Um, he ran a bunch of really good creative shops. And, then he, and, he, was, and he just used to come in. He was this big guy. And he, and he used to go, <clears throat> Phil, come into my office. And he had this deep kind of like gravelly voice. And he would just make these kind of pronouncements. And I felt like I should sort of offer him a severed goat's head in return because <laughs> they were kind of prophetic. And, and he said to me once, he said that I was a pathological contrarian. And when he said that, I thought, shit, he's so right. And there's, a good, there's good aspects of that and there's bad aspects of that. Aspects. Of this is probably a bad aspect, this Patek Philippe. Yeah, the watch on your wrist. I really love it, but probably three other people in the world do. So I'll never be able to sell it. Uh, <laughs> but that goes for fashion and for everything I do. I'm always, there's some part of me mm -hmm. that is always considering what the, the whole does and then wanting to do the opposite. Mm. Um, so that's why I tend to go off in peculiar directions with everything, with whether it's cars that I collect or watches that I collect or jumpsuits that I happen to wear. Right. <laughs> Although the jumpsuit thing, I will say this, I read this thing. So uh, that's not a recent development? You've always worn jumpsuits? For like the last 15 years. No way. I've had, I used to have them made for me. Who I, was I, making them for This you? tailor down the street for like 600 bucks. And then I went one step too far. I had one made in corduroy and I looked like a plushie. <laughs> I came home and, and Carla said, meh, maybe not that. Maybe you should not have that one. But the thing, I, the, the, the jumpsuit started because I remember I was reading something about Einstein and he had seven suits. They're all the same. So right. he never had to put any cognitive power into what am I going to wear? He just right. wore the same thing. I thought, oh, that's genius. I will one up Einstein because that's how genius I am. <laughs> <laughs> with a jumpsuit and i'll make a jumpsuit so i don't have to think about like a thing it's just one piece you right. get into uh, uh <laughs> and then and <laughs> that's kind well of and in corduroy people can hear you coming right a, and, and also you could generate electricity right. the static 
Yeah. Going back to our earlier conversation. You can power a small village just with the static of your thighs brushing together. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, you mentioned watches. I was going to talk about that later, but let's talk about them now. What was your first watch? A Speedmaster. But I bought when I got my first real ad job. I got a in 95, maybe. And then you got rid of it? No, I still have it. Oh, you do still have it. But I one. never wear it because I see everyone else wearing them. That's the thing for me. It's like the moment I... See, no, but they're beautiful. It's the, right. That's the thing. It's a weird thing. The moment I see everyone wearing something I have, so it, it just triggers some little device in my brain that goes, you've got to sell it. I have yet to see anybody wearing this. That one's beautiful. Even though there's thousands of them out there. Well, that's good. So I, that makes me happy. That, is, that makes me happy, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's funny, though. That I just... Like, I've seen... I collect a group group B cars and then I see everyone well not everyone but a lot, I see them a lot more now on Instagram I see people buying them they've become a big thing and now part of me thinks I should get rid of them right because I don't want to I don't want to just be the same have the same sausage as everyone else at the sausage party right I love that you call them sausage <laughs> parties because <laughs> it way. is how many yeah. times you see a woman at a watch get together never never I mean, and it's so uh, sad that they aren't women at watch parties so is so how did it happen, though? You just got a good check, and you knew that the Speedmaster was a good one? Like, what got you into watches? Like, what? Well, the Speedmaster I got because I loved space. Okay. I don't know if you noticed the spacesuit when you came in. I did. <laughs> it was very nice of you not to say anything. I don't have one, but, you know, it's <laughs> you, something I noticed. <laughs> well, but, you know, again, like, the spacesuit, I wanted the space. I read this, I read, I was a massive science fiction nerd as a kid, and I, there was this Robert Heinlein book called Have Spacesuit, Will, Will Travel, that I read when I was like, 11. Then I wrote to NASA and said, do you have a spacesuit I could buy? And they, and they sent me like a bunch of brochures of like, thank you for your interest and all that stuff. <laughs> but, um, but I always wanted to get a spacesuit. And then in the 90s, when I was in advertising and the Soviet Union collapsed, God, it sounded like I'm 5,000 years old. No, um, just four. <laughs> and this is pre-Google. I would Yahoo search spacesuit for sale, like obsessively. No way. And then I found a guy in Poland who knew a guy in Russia, and clearly this guy in Russia, that some, some space museum had gone, had just, he, just he, he had so much incredible stuff for sale. And I should have bought all of it, but I didn't have the foresight. Right. And he had a spacesuit. So and it's I, a Russian spacesuit? It's suit? a Russian cosmonaut suit that I bought. We, we, we negotiated for a year. I, have, I still have all the emails on my folder somewhere. Brilliant. And then I, I put money in an escrow account, and I, put, I paid four grand for it well because uh, you can't buy them in the u.s right it's like buying any like certain well, military watches and things like that well, like you can't, you can't buy well you i mean nasa doesn't uh, basically at that point in the, in the russian history and everything was for sale and then it showed up in a box and i was and i was just freaking out and i and i and i and i first thing i did was try and put it on were you successful? Well, no, because it's for like a guy who's five two. I was gonna ask, like, there's got to be a height disparity, it was, right? It's ve- well, it's 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 cheaper to send a small person to space because it's less mass, less fuel, lighter. Wow, yeah. So you think about that. So it makes more sense. But but I got like half of it in, and I started sweating because it's rubber lined. Oh wow. Well, back to the watches. Yeah, sorry. It, it's, no, it's all good. I uh, no, I, I love this. I mean, I, it just it's a treat. I'm a massive right? rambler. Just, it, I'm same. A, a huge rambler. Um. So your watch collection... That's why I got the Speedmaster. That is why. That was the, that was the long explanation of the Speedmaster because it went into space. And I thought, oh, I can get this watch that went into space. Right. But your collection short, sort of shapeshifts in a way. It does. Over time. 
which well, I think, I, is that evolving taste or is it just always the contrarian? Too many people are buying what I have, so I got to go another direction. Well, it's actually what's kind of amazing about watches, which you don't get with cars. There's, there's, it, with cars, it seems like there's a much smaller universe to explore in a way. But with watches, there are so many different pockets right. of forgotten horological history. And so I think that I've only been, I've been collecting for six years or five or six years. Uh, and so I've just sort of burned through all these different kinds of watches in this quest for things that I really love. And then, you know, like when, whether it's collecting or relationships, I think you have this sort of internal tuning fork inside of you. And when you see something you love, it kind of flicks that tuning fork and it makes the right sound. Right. If that, Right. It's a weird metaphor, but that's how it works for me. So, so I'm just really curious. And also I am, but I'm, I'm both curious and I'm also driven. I'm really motivated by what people are not liking. So that Patek Philippe stuff from the seventies, most people don't like that stuff. And so that makes me think, oh, this is worth looking at. Interesting. Is there like a subconscious thing knowing that it's a better value at that point? Well, or is it not even subconscious? <laughs> no, I, I don't look at it because I think it's a better value. I look at it because I'm interested that no one else likes them. The fact that no one else is looking at those makes me interested in them. And then I look at them and I look at them some more and I think, oh, you know what? The, the craftsmanship, the, they're, the, they're beautiful. They're kind of, but you have to kind of get used to that aesthetic. Because right. the thing about uh, watch collecting, particularly on Instagram, is that there's such a gravitational pull for everyone to get the same thing. And so you become like, that's why everyone likes Rolex sport watches because they, they everyone, you, the more you see them, the more you like them. It's like advertising. Yeah. It's essentially advertising. What, right. That's what Instagram is doing. And the more you like them, the more you like that aesthetic. So when you see something that's a different aesthetic, you go, oh, I don't like that because you're not used to seeing it. Well, it's but so if funny because I'm a, I'm a pre-Daytona fan. Yeah. I love those pieces. Me too. So what draws you to them? The fact that they're not a Daytona? Well, partly, yes. Well, actually, it's a two-part answer. One is, I, 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 the, from the start of collecting, I really loved Eberhardt watches. Right. I love that fussy design aesthetic. I just found that amazing. Mm -hmm. But then, the more I looked at Rolex, like you say, I just thought, God, why? Everyone is just only talking about this stuff. What else is there? And I started looking at pre-Daytona, and it had that design aesthetic that I love. But it was also this paradoxical design aesthetic, because it was 40s design cues packaged in a kind of contemporary-ish case, steel case that we know. So it was that sandwich of conflicting emotions, which I really love. Just, it wasn't a Daytona or a Saab or a GM. I mean, I love those watches. They're really beautiful. And if no one else is buying them, I would be buying those watches. Right. You recently designed a Rolex. Yeah. Kind in of. a roundabout way. Kind of, yes. Can you talk about that so people sure. know what we're talking about? Um, so I guess part of collecting, I. I Part of collecting for me is I really I'm so hung up on this idea that that what you own should be a reflection of who you are. Sure. And it seems to me that what a lot of people own is a reflection of who everyone else is. And so the more I like collecting, the more I like the idea of making things that are specifically for me. Right. Designed by me or have some input in how they look. And so I started looking, at, I, I kept seeing on Instagram all these engraved Rolexes, and I started thinking about that. And I, and I really admired the craftsmanship, but there was no idea to it. Oh, you mean the ones where they've taken the bracelet yeah, they and kind the of case make them and the bracelet like and they, paisley and Yeah, yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, they, you know, the skulls or whatever. But there's, sure. no, but there's no concept. It's just, it's an aesthetic thing. 
mm-hmm. and I then I had this idea: what if um, I designed or I found I had a dialing grade that was specific to the function of the watch? So a submariner would get an underwater themed dial, an uh, air king would get an aviation themed dial. So there's a reason for that dial to be engraved the way it is. Sure, um, and it would be a narrative on the dial, not just a pattern. Right. Uh, because everything that, and that you know, I mean, going back to Avatar, that's just a that's a solid advertising style idea. It's a strong, it's a concept. It's, it's on idea. the nose too. Yeah, it's no, it's not, it's an obvious idea. Right. But no one had done it. So then I spent two years trying to find an engraver, and then finally I found uh, Johnny, who's, who's King Nerd on Instagram, who's just amazing, and he got it totally. And then he designed. We well, I I had found this design I wanted, so we we kind of went back and forth. We did the design, we did the engraving. Um, now, did you hand draw it, or you? you no, actually... I sent him scrap. I sent him. It was. I was kind of fascinated with this whole Jules Verne, like giant octopus wrestling a diver, and I sent him images I found on the web and said something like this, and he came up with his sort of version of that. Nice. Uh, Where is he based? England, London. Oh, so this was a long distance. Yeah, yeah. Project. Yeah, this is long. And then he sent me the dial, and I put it in the watch, and I thought, shit, it doesn't really work. I have to design the rest of the watch. So what watches were you were you using modern or was it a vintage? This is a, it's a mid nineties uh, Rolex. Okay. You want to see it? So, yeah. You want to? Do you have to pause it or something? Or? No, I'm not pausing oh, anything. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pausing anything. Hang on. I mean, I'll show you the. So you've got okay. Oh, you mean you you got like a donor model today? Yeah, that's what it starts as. It's a so a two line, yeah, a two line modern, but still a steel bezel. And then that's what it ends up as. Holy smokes! <laughs> and then you put it on a dark olive NATO. Well, actually, I just put it on the NATO recently. It's on a. It's on a. I. I. When I once the thing that was interesting is once I got the um, the the dial back, I had to have custom brass dials made right for the project so once i put the dial in the watch i thought okay you know what it doesn't work i have to do a lot of other stuff to the watch to make it work so i sandblasted the case i sandblasted the bracelet i skeletonized the hands painted them black i put a black diamond in the pip and then i and then i i made a sterile uh sterile does the bezel rotate yeah okay <laughs> which is which did yeah and then i sandblasted the bezel you could almost use it as a gmt then <laughs> <laughs> ah you know what excellent selling proposition i didn't hey. even think of that you know what? Added value. That is super cool. So we person. did them. In I a, mean, in, in on Instagram, it, it like looks cool, but it looks so illustrated. And then right. in life, it's like so manufactured. Right. It you is. You know what I mean? It? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's metal, obviously. Yeah. That's incredible. Thanks, what did you man. say the dial was made of? Brass? Brass. We had, I had brass dials made. And then you sandblasted the case yourself? No, no, no. I, 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 there's a watchmaker I use. Um, and I brought it to him. He sandblasted it. Well, I'll I mean, take, it was this, uh, it was take this, photos of this for sure. All right, man. It was Is this, that it, right? Yeah, no, of course, yeah. of course. It was this, it, but, and then I, and then I decided to treat them like art. So, so basically, uh, it's an addition of six of that design. And then we won't repeat that design again. So six. Yeah. Is that because of? No it, reason. It, it, six. Yeah, just six. Okay. Uh, and so we sold four watches which is pretty amazing i'm i'm shocked and delighted right <laughs> right say. right what um wow what do they go for 25 grand okay which is a lot of money it costs a lot of money to make between you know buying the watch uh having the dials made 
Johnny doing the engraving. Same movement, though. Same movement. Yeah, I mean, the, the watches are delivered in a beautiful case or service and all the rest of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's kind of cool to look at a sub next to a sub. <laughs> well, like, it's, well, it's funny because I didn't know I was going to go that far. Right. I thought I was just going to drop the dial in and I was maybe going to skeletonize the hands and leave everything as is. But then when I dropped the dial in, I thought, oh, the bezel is so distracting. I was going to say, I bet it looked weird. It did. It, it didn't work. The bezel was super distracting and it, didn't, it just felt like it felt not cohesive as a piece of design. Right. And look, I've never designed a watch before. So, I, you know, again, that's just the sort of arrogance of... of delusion right the engraving's incredible I and mean, it's like borderline three-dimensional oh i, I, I mean, mean i he, guess yeah. it technically is but you know what i mean he's a, he's an incredibly talented artist yeah it's insane very cool um so you've just been ordering these by them so you're making them as you can get yeah as the orders come in pieces yeah, as the orders in. come in well, okay so we've got i just got two more this morning um getting back more towards like the car talk group B your collector, but and chronographs is the reason you like chronographs because of the automotive stuff. No, you just uh, like, just like how they kind of how they look. Yeah. But I also like, I mean the, all the Patek 70 stuff is non chronographical. If that's a word. Right, <laughs> right, right. So you were on talking watches very early on. I was. So you've only been collecting for five or six years. That was really early in your collecting. It was, days. it was like a year into it. Wow. It and was that kind of, came about how? Well, I sold Ben uh, Climber a car, and then he kind of he kind of infected me with the watch collecting virus. Because you know, being a contrarian, I didn't collect watches in part because everyone who likes cars also likes watches, and I just found that really irritating. It was right. so formulaic. I was like, I'm not going to be one of those guys who you know likes watches and cars. I'm just not going to do that. And then I don't know why, but we became friends, and then. I started just looking at watches. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm buying watches. What was the car you sold him? A 1961 Lancia Flaminia Sport Zagato. Nice. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Does he still have it? I think he sold it, actually. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, what was your first car? A 1984 VW Golf GTI. Unreal. Yeah. That's a hell of a first car. Well, it was, but, it, but it, I bought that car in 89, 88. So it was like an old car. It was just a used car. Yeah, but still, a GTI is pretty specific. I think I paid four grand for it. And then the muffler fell off and it sounded amazing. I, I thought, <laughs> wow, this is so much better with the muffler, with no muffler. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. And then you have the Bastarda. Bastarda, yeah. Let's Which talk I'm turning about that into, car. Well, so let's talk about where it came from, how it evolved, because okay. it's pretty famous at this point. I, well, so this w- is, wouldn't you say? I, I guess weirdly, you made yes. keychains for it. Yeah, I sold them all. Right, I know, which is super weird. So well, I bought this. <laughs> I had a, a Lancia um, Evo one, and I sold it. Um, actually, I was going to list it on Bring a Trailer, and then Randy, the guy who owns Bring a Trailer, said, "Do you want to sell it to me?" And then we had this like very vigorous haggleathon. For about a week, he was—he's a strong haggler, uh, and I sold it to him. And then afterwards, I kept seeing, you know, that guy uh, Automobili Amos Eugenio, who done the Futurista, right? So I kept seeing his car, and then I kept thinking, shit, I wish I still had one of those cars. And I mentioned in passing to my friend Tom, who's a car dealer in England, I said, look, if you ever find a super cheap one. Uh, just let me know. And I sort of mentioned it in a way that you kind of say it, but you know nothing's going to happen. Right. And then 
and you kind of hope nothing's going to happen. But then he called me two days later and said, I've got this one for super cheap in Sin Japan. Do you want it? And I said, oh, I guess so. I guess so. So did you, like, like for, for anybody collecting watches, if you buy like a really old watch, you want to know if it's been serviced or not. So like, was There's there anything necessary for the car? Well, well, I thought not. Okay, yeah. See, this is where I'm going. <laughs> I thought not. Because uh, buying cars in Japan actually is a pretty amazing process. Like they have a very rigorous inspection thing and yeah and and they come with graded and all that stuff so the interior was amazing the car looks straight and solid so the car gets here um i pick it up at the port uh and then i take it to my mechanic and he goes oh it's a super solid car no leaks nothing i've never seen one so solid (laughs) and he does a he does a compression test leak down test he goes Actually, it turns out we may have to rebuild the engine. No way. But that was okay because I was going to do something like that anyway because I got it for so cheap. I wanted to make it into a hooligan car right. because it came festooned like barnacles with all these bloody gauges. And it had this like spongy knee pad on the armrest for high, high G lateral turns. Like whoever was driving it raced sure. it. Yeah. Uh, and I loved all that stuff. And that's why I started calling it the Bastarda because it was, this, it, it was originally red, then it had been painted white. Uh, then I was going to, then I not painted it, but color changed it. Um, no, is it a wrap that's on it? No, it's a thing called Autoflex, which is this oh, yeah. spray yep. and it looks just like paint. It's yeah. amazing. And it's super cheap, which is, so I was sort of doing everything on the cheap. So he rebuilt the engine. Um, and then it kept kind of screwing me over, it kept breaking. Like I, I got it back with the rebuilt engine, uh, driving around the city and then I lost all brakes. So I had to do these like handbrake. So you're, so you're drifting around corners at this <laughs> yeah, point? I'm drifting. Oh, yeah. It's like Tokyo Drift, or, but, yeah. but with an old geezer who can't drift. And then I'm, I'm handbraking it at the stop sign until I get back to the garage. <laughs> That's hilarious. So it kept breaking and I kept fixing it. So I called it the Bastarda because I kind of, it just, I don't know, it just seemed, it, I liked it. I liked the idea of rebranding the car. And also I had painted it a color no one had ever seen that car in before. Right. Um, which was interesting. I just thought if I'm going to, I can make it my own. Right. Like the watch. I just thought, let me make it, you know, because the thing about old cars, you treat them with reverence. You, you don't want to touch them, but this car had already been fondled briskly. Right. So, right. so, so I thought, why not continue the fondling? Have you made uh, any additional <laughs> modifications? Just like performance wise. Yeah. Well, I mean, I rebuilt the engine to higher spec, higher spec chipped right. it. Uh, wheels, uh, wheels, yeah. um, I straight piped it initially, but it was too hooligan, even for me. So I added a small... You hear um, you four blocks away. Yeah, yeah, basically. (laughs) Uh, And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to call the car Bastard. I'm going to have signage made in the same typography typography as as Lancia Integrale. Um, My friend Steve, who did the dials, he makes everything. He he made those for me. Right. Uh, And then I made keychains. And now I'm actually going to make a clothing brand. Really? Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And the brand is called Viva Bastardo. Brilliant. And we're making, we're going to have Bastardo sweatshirts, which are in, in, the, in, in this beautiful calligraphic script that comes from a very early Lancia, uh, like 1930s script. Uh, we've designed the logo, everything. So it's all happening. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to make a little clothing brand out of Bastardo. Well, we'll talk clothing after this. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, I'm dying to know where you're getting your t-shirts. I haven't even started. Oh, you we, haven't? Just the design has started. The, the, well, if the, you need the, help, which you probably already do. I'm well, I, happy I'm, I'm happy to yeah. hear it, to listen, man. Yeah. The Sweatshirts is a guy in Pennsylvania who's connected to my designer. Gotcha. Because um, I'm having the Bastardo embroidered on the sweatshirt. I, want to have it, I don't want to have it like a silk screen. Um, so the car's kind of generated a brand. That's amazing. Which is interesting to me. 
where were the keychains made locally or do you have to go overseas for that well i it was a local well it was a it was a place in the states but they went to china oh, okay cool cool yeah what uh, let's talk jujaro jujaro <laughs> oh you said it really well man um you have an m1 bmw i do in the collection yeah what the is collection the, that is sounds it, that sounds right, posh man it sounds right. like there's a guy who takes care of the collection <laughs> You know, two claps. <laughs> <laughs> the bell. <laughs> um, how did you come about that car? I know the story, but others don't, and I love the story. So I had a bunch of, I had some really beautiful uh, 60s Italian cars. I had a 246 Dino. I had a, the Flaminia Sport Zagato. I had, some other, I had an Iso Grifo. I had all these really beautiful things. Um, and I was going down to, I went down to Florida to see this guy who was selling a Mangusta, the Tommaso Mangusta, which is a really beautiful car. Mm. I th- is that Giugiaro? Uh, yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, silver, forehead like car. It was 80 grand. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, then uh, whatever, 250. Um, and I went down and I got in the car and I must have driven it like 100 yards. <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was, the most hilarious driving position I've ever experienced. You basically, the front, the tip of my forehead is touching the, where the glass meets the roof in the car. I mean, it was, the mo- it was just so ridiculous. I just started laughing immediately. I got out of the car and said, I can't buy this car. But he had... No BM- airbag would even bother helping you at this point. <laughs> yeah. Your yeah, head's I'm, just through I'll the just glass. Im- I'll just impale myself on the steering wheel <laughs> before I hit anyone just to get it out of the way. So, so, but he had an M1 in the showroom. And I had never been that interested in them, but I thought, you know what, I'm here, why not have a go? I mean, how often do you get to have a go in a car, in a vintage car, before you even consider it? Right. And I drove it, and it just blew my mind. I mean, it was, I, I was fizzing. I was, li- I, was, I was like, a, I don't know what I was like, but I was, my head exploded. Uh, and I had this kind of epiphany, this, this, the, the closest I've come to a religious epiphany, I thought, you know what, I don't want to have any of this stuff anymore from the 60s, it's all bollocks. I want to have stuff that really drives well. And I suddenly, and he, and I suddenly, he also actually had a, a Stratos there. Um, so I tried to buy the M1 from him, it didn't happen. Uh, and I ended up buying it from a guy who was a gun dealer uh, in Atlanta. And he'd had the car for 10 years, loved the car more than life itself. He had the jacket, he had the brochures, he had like a, a, like a glass case full of like little M1s. And he was selling because his girlfriend wanted them to buy a log cabin. So I go down there, I buy the car. He's so, I'm almost like, I feel bad, but not that bad, but pretty bad about taking away from him. Yeah, you're taking away his yeah. manhood. Yeah, <laughs> basically his, his whole, yeah. And he said, and he said, you know, please, if you ever want to sell it, just you know, let me know first and all this stuff. Uh, he called me like a year later and I said, and he said, how's the car? And I said, it's pretty good. I said, how's the girlfriend? He said, well, we kind of broke up after I sold the M1. And I thought, ah! Oh my God. So anyway, that, that me, that, I just kind of got obsessed with the idea of functionality in cars. Right. So the M1 was designed for a race series. All the Group B stuff was designed for a reason. It wasn't designed for posing. It was designed for a purpose. And I found that really romantic. So this was your foray into that? That, that, was, the, that was the entrance into that. And yeah. I sold all my 60s stuff, bought all ugly, boxy stuff from the 80s. So other than driver position, what was the driving distinction there? Because I've never driven either. Uh, 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 for what? The De Tomaso versus the, the M1. It was, the M1, it just, it just gave you... Like the thing about 60s cars for the most part 
is they always feel like they always felt like I don't know like they didn't give you I never felt like they gave me confidence I'm not the most amazing driver and and but when I got in the M1 I felt like holy shit I am an amazing driver in this car because <laughs> it the chassis so balanced the engine sounded incredible it had this it had acceleration it, it had just the right amount of horsepower um it just felt great driving it like the other stuff I mean I loved driving the Dino actually that was an amazing car to drive right uh but I don't know, like it just made me feel good in the way that those cars didn't for some reason. Now, the shift gate pattern in the M1 is interesting, isn't it? It's just is a like dog the, leg. Oh, it is? Yeah. yeah okay. a, well, all the, a lot of the, all the race car stuff is always dog leg. Okay. Yeah, I haven't driven one. You don't want to so. downshift into, into first right. when you're racing a car. <laughs> right. Could be well, awkward. a lot of like modern Ferraris, for, even for the longest time, have like started. And so you have to, have to downshift into first to start. Some, yeah. Because they'll start in second. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, from a yeah, that's the dog leg pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. But you're also into the Seiko Quartz. Giugiaro. Giugiaro. That's the one watch I still have from my Talking Watches episode. Right. The only one. The only one. So bye-bye Breitling. Everything. I, I, I was massively into Breitling, sold all my Breitling. Now, was Breitling the English thing or was Breitling just an no, aesthetic I just, thing? You know what it was? Here's another example of me being a contrarian. Everyone was massively into Hoya and Hoya was going mental. And I kept looking at Breitling going, but... Brightling's so much more interesting just from a pure design standpoint and an innovation standpoint. Like they had so many interesting, fascinating watches that just, they were doing stuff that other people weren't doing and they were taking design leaps that certainly Hoyer wasn't doing. Hoyer's are cool, but they were, but they were. Well, Hoyer's like, so minimal. Well, Whereas like kind of, Brightling they, can be really busy on the dial. Well, I felt like Hoyer was like committee cool. Ah. Like. A bunch of people sat around and said, "This is this is this. We'll design it this way." And and it was beautiful design, but Breitling was they were there's particularly some of the super oceans. They were doing stuff that would, no one was doing design wise at all. Right. And I really admired that, and I loved that. I saw the analog shift was selling a super ocean the other day, and I thought of you. I was like, "They're so cool." I was super like, "Is oceans. that? I was like, is that Phil's watch?" <laughs> I mean, I sold. It could have been. I sold all of them, but I sold all of them because I started seeing everyone getting into Breitlings, and I thought, oh, "Okay, that's enough for me." So even though you... Giugiaro. Yeah. Back to that. Yeah, back to Giugiaro. The, well, what's interesting is, is, like, obviously, if it comes from the same head, right? Like, the design aesthetic may or may not be the same. Right. Do you ever find that your work changes because it's too similar to what you've done before? Well... Aesthetically, like, photographs, no, sure. right? You could, same point of view. No, well, actually... Um, the one thing I think that distinguishes my work is that is that each project is visually really different from the previous. Right. They all look really different mm. uh, because the thing I feel very strongly is that ideas are kind of like they're kind of like living creatures. And when you have an idea, if you listen to it, it will tell you what it wants to be. So for art, you know, it'll, it'll tell me if it wants to be video or sculpture or installation or whatever it happens to be. Right. Well, has your car collection morphed the same way that? your watch collection has well it's it's a, a little harder to turn around cars because they're, right, sure. yeah. they're they're sort of a lot less fungible i guess um but i feel actually like i'm on the cusp of of that change now well you're creating a clothing line behind one so <laughs> well there is that but i actually was i've been thinking about this for a while of just selling all my cars and keeping the bastarda and then buying like I've got my eye on a, I've quite fancy a Ford Escort Cosworth. Oh wow! Um, yeah, RS yeah. from the from the early nineties. Just maybe, I don't know. Like, so the, you like kind of the hatchback? 
Well, I like style. hooligan right. style. But also, I also feel, I also, the funny thing about Instagram is it really begins to define you. Mm-hmm. You know, like you become, oh, you're the guy who has all those Group B cars. Right. It becomes part of who you are, which is strange. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's sort of the caveat of making Instagram personal versus a professional outlet. Sure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm not that famous, so I don't really get like, <laughs> you're that guy who blah, blah, blah. But well, I, I guess I'm not, I don't think I'm famous but I do get, but people go, you know, when I, people go, oh, how's the 037? I say, I sold it. They go, what? You sold it. Like, it's almost like, um, it's almost like what it must be like if you're 17 and you know, you, you break up with a girlfriend, but then you always like, you see her in the background picture of some post on Instagram. Like there's always the shadow of things you used to own right. because of Instagram. Whereas in pre-Instagram year era, you just sold something and disappeared and that was it. See, I'm the weird guy that like thinks for borderline years before buying something, especially oh, really? like a watch. And a lot of that has to do with affordability. Sure. And for me, it's like, I keep looking at it until I either get sick of it or I can't stop thinking about it. I'm the same so, way, but on a much shorter time. Right. Timeline. <laughs> like I'll look at things repeatedly. And actually, funnily enough, when I, when I'm thinking about a watch, I look at it on Instagram. There's two things that happen. I look at it on Instagram to see, and I, and I will notice it's not, I do, don't do this on purpose, but I will notice how many posts there are of that watch. And if there's like less than a hundred, I think, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that, suddenly <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> but also the other reason is I like to see what it looks like on people's wrists. Right. We were talking earlier about yeah. like, so it's funny. I wore a watch home to North Carolina where I grew up and my dad had since seeing him bought a watch and we traded for like the three or four days that I was home. Right. And so I wore it all day, every day for four days. He wore it all day, every day for four days. And at the end of the trip, we traded back. And my idea, actually, the day I was leaving, I was like, well, let's just keep the trade and I'll just give it <laughs> right. back to you the next time I see you. Right. Right. That was the idea anyway. And then he's like, no, let's trade back. <laughs> and I said, fine. What were the watches? And so I put the watch on and I'm about to get out of the car. And he goes, by the way, the next time you come home, I want to trade back. <laughs> I was like, you saw it on my wrist now. You want it back. That's right. And that's how it works. I love, I mean, I have we're all enough, four-year-olds. No, it's so true. You know what and I mean? I, and I mean, that's, I love people. I love friends of mine driving my cars. Yeah. Because yeah. then I get to, because when they get out, I see what they look like. And I think, ah, that's how I feel. Yes. Hopefully. And I, and I feel exactly the same about watches. Yeah. It's really cool when someone puts on a watch I own. You, you, it's, it's kind of a, it's so weird how fascinating it is. Right. Because you, then you, when, when they're wearing it, you see everything you love about that watch. Right. Or not. Right. The watches, to answer your question, it was, a, I had a Batman GMT, right. but on Oyster, not the new, on Jubilee. And then right. the, he had the previous iteration, uh, Explorer 2 white dial. Oh, that's cool. So the 40 millimeter with the red GMTN, right. my favorite Explorer 2, the yeah. only Explorer 2 as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. So yeah, maybe we'll switch back or whatever. Right. But, um, and I always keep the GMT hand on East Coast time because of my dad and you right. know, he lives there and I live on the West Coast. Um, but yeah. I read somewhere recently there's a new Porsche project you're working on. Is that? So, yes. Okay. So going back to my obsession with the idea of ideas. So I kept looking at, at Porsches and I kept seeing just, it's kind of like, you, you know what the thing about the Rolex I did is I just got sick of seeing like the zombie PVD hordes of blacked out Rolexes. I thought I want to do my own thing. And the thing with the Porsches is I kept looking at everyone doing an homage to IROC, RS, 
uh, RSR, like everything, you know, tartan interior, like everything is just this copy of this car that existed in the 70s or the 60s, long hood, whatever it was, right? Um, cool by committee. Yeah, well, I mean, cool by gravitational pull, right. in a way. Like everyone's doing it, so everyone does it. Right. And, 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 and again, it's not that those cars aren't beautiful. It's just that if you're going to customize a car, why would you do it so it looks like everyone else's customized car? So I had this notion that I would design a car called the 212, which is the New York City area code. Right. And it's a poem to New York. So I'm taking every, I'm trying to take as many influences as I can from the city. So for instance, the wheels are copies of manhole covers. No way. <laughs> yes. So you're having those manufactured. Yeah. I can't wait to see this. And the, you know, the, the engine grill is a, is a copy of the subway grate pattern. Wow. And so the, what the body sil- are you using for this it's car? It's a 78 SC. Okay. Uh, so. And then, and then the gauges. Um, is that accordion bumper? Yeah, but would, but also, well, there's two things. I, because I'm such a delusional and presumptuous bastard, not only am I just saying I'm going to do this car that's specific to a car designed around New York City and for New York City, um, but I'm also changing all the things I dislike about Porsche design because, of course, I've got years as an automotive designer. Right, right, of course. <laughs> that's what you majored in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, English lit and then, and, then, and then car design. So, for instance, I never liked the rear-end treatment of Porsches. Um, the way the lights are. So we redesigned the whole back end. <laughs> I never liked uh, the door handles. So I have a whole other door handle set up. I never liked uh, the weird way the gas cap, the, the, the lid flips up. The I flip. just found that weird. So I just got rid of that and did something else. So what, what don't you like about the door handles? I just, I don't know. Like, like the trigger thing? Or? I just found it like... What I'm doing, actually, is I'm kind of just smoothing out the whole car, getting rid of all this extraneous stuff, kind of making it. I don't know. I just didn't. I just felt like they were like the shape is so beautiful. But then that sort of felt. Um, what's the word? Like it just it felt like misplaced punctuation. OK, <laughs> the, so it's the just way got it too many designed, commas. The way. It, yeah, that was a, it was a period in the wrong place. Right. Like it, just the way it was designed didn't quite feel as good as the rest of the car. Right. Which, you know, why would it be? It's a functional thing that they just put on there. That's probably the, the easiest and best possible solution. But I thought I had another idea for the door handles. That's brilliant. Well, I saw because of Instagram, obviously, I, I see certain things that you're into. Sure. I saw that you spent some time with Magnus Walker recently. Yes. So is we he became in on, friends. So he's in on this. Well, he's actually he's seen it. Yeah, he's seen oh, it. Oh, so this there's like a physical manifestation already. Oh yeah, it's all in the. When work. did you start it? God, like a year and a half ago. Oh two no years, way. Maybe okay. two years so, ago. Yeah, two all years. Right. And just, when when will it be done? <laughs> You'll have to ask Rich, the guy at Rocks Auto, who's doing it. Uh, it's a very slow project. Are you doing any engine or performance stuff? No. Okay, I mean, so it's all aesthetic. It, I mean, the engine, it was, it's, just, it's a strict three liter, uh, which he rebuilt. So there's no miles on a three and a rebuilt engine. Right. Um, yeah, it's just totally aesthetic. Cool. And I'm redoing the interior completely differently from how it would look <laughs> normally. Well, what did Magnus think? Uh, I, <laughs> well, you know what? It's hard to tell sometimes with Magnus because he's, he's polite. I think, he li- I think he likes it. I mean, he's, he's, he, he likes the details. He likes the changes I've made. So, but Because we'll he changes his cars and, yeah. he, you know, manipulates. But For sure. But this, very well, classic, this is, but racy. Yeah. And this is quite, I mean, there's 
this is going to be a very binary cut. I think there's going to be a lot of very upset people. Well, I mean, I think those are the best objects. Well, I, I think so. T- Look, I th- you don't move the conversation forward unless you're upsetting people. Because if you're upsetting people, you're saying something new. Right. And that's generally what people get upset about. Right. Is they're kind of knocked off balance by something new. Right. I just can't wait for BBS to come out with their manhole cover <laughs> wheels. I'm telling you, you know what's amazing? You want me to show them to you? A hundred percent. Okay. I'll show it to you because it's radio. Well, yeah, exactly. So what's but, interesting too is it's like if you look at a lot of the new, um, was the e the the e race series? What is what is it called? Like the F one series, but for electric cars. Okay. So here's the here's the cover. Here's the, right. the inspiration. Right. That's the manhole cover. So and here's the this is a rendering, but there's the wheel. Yeah, I'll delete all this out. No, you could keep it in there. Oh. For your reaction. Yeah. No one's going to know what it looks like. Well, it's so funny. It's like this sunflower it, meets it, like a hundred spoke wheel. <laughs> but it's beautiful. I it think. really is. I mean, it really, it just, it's this really beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's also. Are I, those going to be for sale? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody's going to buy those. Well, maybe. That's the thing. I'm making a car that no one, I'll never be able to sell. Unless it becomes like such a famous car. That, that, well, I'm sure it will be. I mean, but, even just as an art project, I mean, it inherently becomes a one of one. This right? is, this, you can't say what this is, but that's the door handle. <laughs> it looks like, an, like a futuristic historic CD player. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually from the 50s, that door handle. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much, man. It's been what, really entertaining. What has been the best way for others to keep up with you? Like any way to follow I guess your work? Just Mr. Enthusiast. Okay. Yeah. So Instagram, Mr. Enthusiast. Yeah. For all the shenanigans. That's for all the shenanigans. <laughs> I love of it. Of which there are many. Uh, yeah. Well, we wouldn't have it any other way. Phil, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, man. I, okay. I really, it's been a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Cheers. Major thanks goes to Phil for having me over at his apartment for what was one heck of a time chatting. As always, thank you to Clear Audio for the use of their incredible headphones and to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Stay tuned for the next episode dropping in two weeks' time. Stay safe, healthy, and happy. Bye, everyone.